nothing is like the entrepreneurial roller coaster. So you can start a day going, it's amazing. We're going to smash it. Fabulous idea. It's going to be the next TikTok or something. And then sort of after lunch, you're like, oh, this has happened. This is a disaster. We now don't have as much runway or this person are like superstar is resigned or whatever it may be. And the lurch from sort of, um, you know, high as a kite to kind of down on the floor is, is not for the faint hearted. Welcome to Great Minds, and my guest today, and this is a genuine pleasure, is Anna Jones, who is the co-founder of Albright, and we're going to talk a lot about the Albright. Uh, so thanks for doing this, Anna, and uh, it's a pleasure to speak to someone across the other side of the Atlantic. Oh, thank you for having me, Matt. It's lovely to talk to you. I know it's super early for you, so I'm hoping that you've been fueled by a bit of coffee we before are, we get started. We are, we are ready. We are ready. We are ready to go here. <laughs> So Anna, when I was thinking about your career, you're what I would call a true 21st century Renaissance woman. And you have really straddled two areas that are very much part of pop culture and shaping pop and business culture. And that's sort of the second wave and rise of female empowerment. And you've also straddled the rise of digital and the technologically driven transformation that we're all in the midst of living through. And that affects us, of course, in business, and it affects our lives at home. So I'd love to start our conversation by going back about 20 years to your tenure at EMAP. And I think that was your first gig in the magazine industry. And you were pretty young when you started. We won't quite call you a prodigy, but pretty close. What do you remember from those early days? And I know you got to work on some great titles, including Grazia and others. But what do you remember fresh out of uni, working at EMAP almost 20 years ago? So, um, look, it was an absolute dream job. Um, I was completely thrilled that I'd managed to bag a job at a company that was really quite rock and roll in those days. You know, they were, we had brands like FHM magazine and we had brands like Heat magazine and they were sort of knocking out, you know, millions of copies a week or a month. Um, it was quite sort of nascent in the digital world, but they were really making strides to figure out how to build communities beyond print um, in the early days um, and they were launching magazines you know so this was a really really fun place to be um, you basically would get clever people put them in a room um, so I was in the marketing department but you'd have kind of marketing editorial um, someone in sales they sort of be put in a room for a few months to come up with a great concept that fits a kind of market niche come up with something exciting and then we'd launch it um, and we'd spend a lot of money doing it and we would spend a, you know, a lot of time thinking about the brand and it was very, very can-do culture. And I guess I feel like that was where I cut my teeth as a marketer because marketing sat at the kind of heart of the organization. You know, we were the ones that were figuring out how many we needed to print, how many we were going to sell, you know, um, what the brand was going to be called. We do this sort of consumer um, insight. We would think about the marketing plans. We'd work very, very closely with the editors. And so I suppose for me, I felt like I, I, I've always been someone who wants to work with creative people. I think I'm probably a frustrated um, creative. And I think that I've always thought around, um, you know, creative thinking in, in business. And, and I think that that's probably partly because I was lucky enough to work with some incredible editors and journalists and designers very closely. Um, and that was a real privilege. Um, and we sort of sat at the, in, in the, at the heart of the organization um, as a marketing department. So it was a brilliant place to cut my teeth. I got loads of different opportunities. You mentioned one of them, you know, launching Grazia magazine. And at the time it was seen as a, like a really sort of innovative thing to do because all these glossies like Elle and Red and Harper's and all of that. And there were loads of weeklies that were selling like hot cakes, like Heat and Closer and Now and so on. But no one had thought of a kind of weekly glossy. And so we were lucky enough to launch 
um, what was a very established and successful brand in Italy into um, into the UK. And, you know, we were making TV ads. We had enormous, great big posters everywhere, huge outdoor campaign, massive sampling campaign. You know, we had um, Jennifer Aniston on the cover because she was the person that was going to sell, <laughs> represent this brand and sell this brand. And, you know, anything with Jennifer Aniston on was sort of selling brilliantly. And, and so... It was, I, I guess it was probably like going to work at some of the big tech companies is now, or maybe was maybe 10 years ago, that sort of excitement and can do. And, you know, you got access to great thinkers. Um, it wasn't a particularly hierarchical organization. So if you had a good idea, you could kind of go and make it happen. So I felt very, very fortunate. Um, I think it helped me develop a little bit of um marketing and branding knowledge and, and, a, and a bit of swagger really from being w- with all of these awesome people. So you talked about launching new products back then. Jumping to today, it's an industry that's gone through severe contraction. Hmm. And we've watched various genres of the media emerge that didn't exist at all 20 years ago. We've watched others refashion themselves. Podcasting, what we're doing right now is really a modern iteration of radio, Mm. right? Something that's been around forever. We've watched the outdoor business kind of swoon downwards. And then we've watched digital outdoor re-energize that medium. Magazines have had a tough time. Mm. Do you think looking back on those early days, and I know you were very involved at your next gig in sort of the early days of magazines and digital, But do you think that an opportunity was missed if you were sitting on top of the whole magazine global empire and you were the czar of all magazinedom? Is there something that was missed or was it just an inevitability as to how people read, subscribe, absorb information? Um, Look, it's a big question and one that I grappled with, I guess, as the um, CEO of Hearst as well um, when I was doing that job. I think um, in an ideal world, if you'd had a, a crystal ball, you would have looked to the future and said, some of these brands just need to be launched digital first. You know, forget, forget that easy route to market of sticking it into a news agent and a supermarket shelf. Let's take some of these brands and just make them digital first. And it's gonna be a, probably a longer game. Um, I think the issue with that, particularly when you're in a public company, is it's all about money today and money tomorrow and bottom line today and bottom line tomorrow. Um, You're not really thinking about the long term in quite the same way. And, you know, um, the magazine business in its heyday was extremely lucrative, as you um, as you're aware. I think um, the difficulty, of course, also was there was starting to be a movement that content digitally should be free. Um, which is terrifying. Um, perhaps if the, all the news industry had got together and sort of said, okay, you know, our, our content is amazing. Um, we should be able to charge for it. And there was a sort of development of a, of a subscription model that we, could have been effective for lifestyle magazines. I mean, I know it's there for news magazines and, um, you know, niche titles um, and niche brands. But in terms of those sort of broader lifestyle brands, I suppose what happened is it turned into Instagram, right? I mean, really, that Instagram is doing what many of those magazines were doing. And, and I think that gap has, has sort of been gobbled up. I, I think, um, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it's extremely, it was difficult to imagine a time when people wouldn't have that moment to sit with their coffee or get their hair done or whatever it may be and, and open a magazine. And I think even now there is still that, um, luxury feeling of having a moment either with the Sunday papers or the magazine that you love to actually take time away from a screen but obviously over the last year um, people haven't been able to pick up magazines in the same way or going to stores the same way so it's, it's been an absolute catastrophe for um, for that whole industry I, I think the interesting thing from my point of view was when I went into to run Hearst I guess really my mission there was to help the company think about 
how to build those brands and those business models that were so heavily reliant on print um, to reimagine themselves. And I've always thought about those magazine brands as communities. I mean, mainly for me, it was working on, on brands that were focused um, on women. And I guess what um, we try to do is think about, yes, of course, there's digital growth, and that's really, really important. And also, when you have got those enormous scale brands like Cosmopolitan and L, you should be able to approach it from a real sort of truly kind of global global way. But I think it's quite hard to um, dismantle existing business models and really uh, get people to think in a very, very new way. I think we managed to do a good job of that. I think we managed to do a good job of thinking about global hubs for digital. But importantly, one of the things that we tried to do was say, okay, this is not just about digital. This is also about experiential. And obviously you are the master of experiential. Um, I think that became just as important as digital. Um, I, I don't know. Obviously, again, that's been something that's been hugely impacted over the last year. So I, I guess there isn't a simple um, answer. Back then there wasn't a simple answer and I, I don't think there's a simple answer today. But I think you, and you mentioned this word earlier, there was a glamour to it. And I think some of that we still have today, that if you're sitting at the top on the business side or the editorial side of some of the world's leading magazines, there's a real glamour and sexiness to it. That must have been very exciting for you to be launching Grazia. You mentioned Jennifer Aniston. You must have had some hell of, you know, interesting experiences drawing back on that early age as a very young businesswoman. It was amazing. You know, I mean, I, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in North Yorkshire, um, you know, on a farm. Um, and I, this, you know, my sort of window into the world was reading Marie Claire and cosmopolitan and you know the the fact that I, I managed to um make a career of working with those brands was unbelievable um so 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 exciting and you know for sure um it, it's it's glamorous it was glamorous you know we were we were doing Elle style awards we were doing harper's bazaar women of the year awards you know we, we had all of these fabulous people showing up because of the power of the brand and because of the power of those amazing editors and amazing writers who created a world for people which offered escapism in quite a different way. Um, and again, I mean, I think a lot of digital platforms have looked at that escapism and thought about, well, how do we replicate that in a kind of modern, modern world? Terrific. So you spent about five years there and then move on and really are one of the early pioneers in the space trying to figure out that digital navigation and what is that roadmap forward? How did you go from EMAP to a pretty big digital and strategy director position at one of the largest players in the world overseeing properties like Elle and many others? So I'm, I moved from EMAP to work um, at Hachette um, and that was chaired by um, an awesome man called Kevin Hand who um, I always got on very well with because he was very, very direct. And I, I guess I'm probably quite direct as well. We had a similar sense of humor, quite dark sense of humor, which helped. And I think, um, honestly, I'd love to say they could see, you know, I was a digital, um, you know, genius. And they brought me in there because they knew I could fix it. What happened was, I think I'd always been seen as a bit of a fixer. So somebody who, if there's a problem, I'm, I'm kind of the person who puts my hand up and goes, okay, I, I think I can sort that out because I'm quite logical and I, I like solving problems. And so um, digital became hugely important to the group Lagardère that owned um, Hachette. Um, like many of the big, big publishing houses, they were trying to figure it out and they were trying to acquire businesses and so on. And Kevin Hand, who was the boss at the time, I remember he just brought me in one day into his office and just sort of said, look, um, you, you, you kind of know how to sort things. No one seems to be able to sort this digital thing. Can you just just take it? Just take that on. Just do it. Just manage that alongside what you're doing. It'll, it'll be fine. <laughs> and so I was kind of like, 
okay um and just sort of grabbed hold of it thought well this is a great opportunity and i always say this to people you know be the one that puts your hand up and also if someone asks you to do something that you've got a vague bit of interest in just say yes and you'll figure it out and if you're working with good people and you've got positive energy and positive momentum then just do it and that's really what happened with me and i absolutely loved it i took l online we took red online we acquired digital spy which is one of the biggest websites um, sort of entertainment websites in the uk um we had a ball and we were figuring out how to do digital magazines and that was the sort of replica replica of the magazines and, and how we could get people to subscribe to those but but i you know i, I was learning as i was going um i i just you know it, it's my leadership style really is i just sort of say yes i put a great bunch of people around me um i I'm very, very enthusiastic and sort of cups half full. And I think there's a way of figuring it out. But, you know, when I first uh, arrived to that role, I had a whole bunch of, um, you know, engineers who reported into me and product people and all of this stuff. And I remember uh, it was quite chaotic, right? I, I inherited something which was quite chaotic. And I thought, okay, I just, how am I going to, how am I going to pull them all together? And they sort of looked at me in horror as I moved into the office on this huge open plan floor and got loads and loads of post-its and just put post-its up all over the, the, you know, my office, brought them in and said, right, OK, right, we're going to rearrange this and put it in some sort of logical order. And I just thought, crikey, OK, these are people who are used to working in sprints and <laughs> thinking about, you know, deep into code. And I'm there with my kind of post-its. So I had to sort of bridge that cultural um, divide. But I think that they... Um, trusted that I was enthusiastic and that I would get get shit done and, and, and that's what I do. Yeah, and, and you are a get shit done gal and you use that word, you know, someone who can fix things. Get Anna, she can figure it out, she can fix it. But you grew up in rural England in the North. <laughs> you grew up on a farm. Where do you think that intuitiveness came from, that bravery? Does it tie back to your parents in growing up as you did? Or was it something that just, you know, the wiring came that way? Um, funny enough, I saw my parents for the first time um, two weeks ago for, for almost a year. And they were, they were saying a similar thing to me. They were like, where do you get this from? Like, where do you get this sort of can do and keep going, keep going, keep going, resilience sort of attitude? And I said, well, look at you two. You know, you're, you're pretty resilient pair so I think there's definitely some of that I actually think part of it is I'm the eldest of four girls um my mum's Danish my mum's very sort of um pioneering matriarch she left home when she was 17 um she um brought us up to believe we were completely equal and that you know boys and girls were equal men and women were equal and maybe that's a bit more of a sort of Scandinavian thing so that was sort of obviously in the you know kind of late 70s 80s um my dad became a feminist because he'd had four girls and you know every time he had another daughter the local farming community would say oh no don't no don't give up keep going you'll have a boy soon <laughs> And actually it enraged my father, you know, he was so irritated because he was very proud of these, these girls that he'd had. Um, and so I think partly because we lived in the middle of nowhere and because we were brought up like that, my grandparents lived in a cottage just sort of um, down the road. It's all very sort of idyllic in a way. We were taught to believe there was nothing we couldn't do. And so, you know, when I was, I moved schools quite a few times, I got to university, um, even university, I was very much like, okay, there's nothing I can't do, you know, it was with lots of very smart people, I was studying business. Um, and it wasn't until I tipped into the world of work that I suddenly sort of thought, oh, okay, there are hardly any women in charge here. Like, this is like, this is really a boys club. Um, and at that point, I thought, oh, there is a limit to what we can do unless we start to think about you know um how to smash those glass ceilings kick those doors down um and be more positive so um i think i to my earlier point on creativity i i think i'm probably a bit of a frustrated creative so i channel that through um solving business problems creatively or i try to anyway not always you, successfully of course you 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 <laughs> more successful much more often than not so at an incredibly young age in your 
early 30s, you get plucked out of Hachette to become chief operating officer at one of the legendary storied companies, brands. Uh, I still drive by all the time, the Hearst building up in Manhattan on 57th. And, you know, uh, everything about that place, you know, is just impressive. Mm. How did you get to become COO of Hearst? Was it Arno that hired you or was it his predecessor? And give us that part of the journey. And, and it was shortly after that, I think that we actually met. Yeah, that's right. It, it, it was. Um, look, the, the uh, Hearst had decided to acquire the Hachette business and fold it in the UK with the Nat magazines back business that they'd had for sort of 100 years. And, you know, certainly in the UK, it, it was just made perfect sense. You know, you were adding sort of Cosmo with L and Harper's with, um, you know, Red and L and so on. So it, so it made a lot of sense. At that time, when we found out that the company was being acquired, I had assumed that that would be it for me. And I'd be going off on my entrepreneurial journey because I've always had this kind of entrepreneurial itch to scratch. And I think I just thought, OK, well, this is going to happen. So I, I really need to think about this is my moment. And, and I guess what happened, and this is this is part of the reason I believe it's so important to think about not just everyone talks about mentors, but actually I think it's important to talk about sponsors in your career. And I mentioned Kevin Hand, um, who ran Hachette. He was very sort of active because he really he was also a father of four daughters, actually, um, before he passed away. Sat very, very sadly and very way, way, way too early. Um, and I think he was an early champion of women and people would say, Kevin Hand, champion of women, really? He was such so sort of gruff and <laughs> direct and quite scary to a lot of people. But I think um, he saw something in me. And I remember, you know, he would say to me, you know, if you if you lead, people will follow. And I thought, OK, right, fine, you know, you, whatever. Um, uh, but I think he saw something. And so he actively, I think, as the acquisition was going through, said to the Hearst board, you should take her, you know, so you're not going to take everyone, but you should take her. And I met Arno de Prefontaine, who you mentioned, who was the very charismatic um, CEO um, of the Hearst business. Um, I'm quite a Francophile. You know, I, I, I studied a year in, in um, a French business school as part of my degree. Um, I was very, very, very passionate about magazine brands. And that was sort of obvious, I guess. Uh, and but but I think that Kevin had sort of already said, look, you know, she's really good. And so I, um, I met with Arno and then I had to go through this huge process like we all did of being absolutely grilled by various headhunters and put through our paces. Um, what would we do? What kind of characters we were? And, you know, at the end of it all, they sort of said to me, OK, we'd like you to come in and be the COO. And I have to I, honestly, people say, oh, did you always have designs on the corner office? And I'm like, I really didn't. I was very shocked. But I thought, there's no way I'm going to pass up this opportunity. What an incredible opportunity. And goodness me, what a um, steep learning curve in terms of leadership, because suddenly there I was, as you say, I was quite young. Um, and I was in charge of effectively making this um, uh, acquisition work and sort of bringing the two businesses together as seamlessly as possible. And that meant we had to, you know, we had to sell some businesses we had to merge some businesses we had to restructure we had to think about things in a very different way I had a completely different management team many of whom were a good decade older than me um, and you know I, I had a very um, you, you know Arno I think he probably would describe himself like this as well he's a whirlwind of a character an absolute whirlwind um, extremely um, smart very strategic um, but he's sort of operating at um, helicopter level most of the time. And so, again, I think it comes back to this thing of being a fixer. It was a bit like, OK, we need someone to come in and bring that helicopter down to to land. Um, and and that's that was really my, my mission. And Hearst is one of those companies that has a legendary culture. Mm. And you step into that culture and you referenced it. A lot of the people that were suddenly reporting to you were much older than you. Mm. You come in as an outsider, you've got an inherent entrepreneurial spirit. How tough was it for you to adjust yourself and make sure that you could lead within that Hearst culture? Um, the Hearst culture took a little bit of time to figure out, but I, 
I think, again, I mentioned um, that I moved schools quite often. And I think that that helped me. I'm quite a chameleon. I'm quite good at sort of um, figuring out, reading the room, if you like. Sometimes I'm, I don't talk all the time. Sometimes I'm just listening, just quiet and listening, absorbing, watching what's happening. Um, and so I'm quite good at, um, at that. I think I was lucky enough to work with um, a lot of people who'd worked with me for quite a long time. So they did bring quite a few of our, our team over and also some people I knew in the industry. Um, and I, I, I guess you have this idea that you need to be a certain type of person. You need to change the way you are. You're suddenly in charge of this big business. You need to change. And I just felt like, okay, of course I've got to up my game. Everyone, you have to up your game every time you um, change job but for me I thought I've just got to be authentic to who I am and that is I'm I'm very open I'm very honest I believe that if you explain the situation the challenge whatever it may be the, the business problem in simple terms people will they want to hear it and they want to help and so I thought I'm not going to play games I'm not going to play the politics I'm just going to be very direct. I will, I'll, the, once I've sort of sorted out who my team are, I'll make sure I've got their backs and they can always, always come and talk to me about stuff. They need to feel like they can come and tell me anything. And I've got an open door and they can come and talk to me. And now, was I always successful in that? I don't know, you'd have to ask them, but I had a good go at it. You know, I try to be um, open, fair, honest, and also very, very <laughs> forwards, forwards, forwards. You know, um, there's lots of, um, uh, when you're when you're trying to change an industry or if you're trying to change a business turn it around there are lots of factions within that don't want that change so the other thing is you have to be really clear about this is where we're headed we don't exactly know how we're going to get there but this is where we're headed and this is why are you on the bus or are you not um and so you know we, we had to we had to make a lot of changes and it was pretty painful for people so i knew that i needed a team around me who were believers and i still believe that now you know, you, you, you get a sense of whether people are really with you or not. Are you a believer in how we're going to get to that North Star? As long as everyone's clear what the North Star is, we'll figure out how to get there. And that's the only way that I know how to lead. And so um, that's what I did. And, you know, the people who got behind me um, hopefully had a good time, but it, it probably wasn't for everyone. Great stuff. So... Arno is running around the world being Arno. What a unique, special guy he is. You're in the engine room making everything work, but you're also a senior executive in you know, a very glamorous business. And you're surrounded by brilliant people, not only your colleagues at Hearst, but the nature of what you were leading, you're out there mixing it up with an awful lot of great minds. Interesting dinners, interesting cocktail parties, interesting breakfasts and lunches, et cetera. Who were some of the figures from that early period? You're still a very young woman at that time. Who were some of the interesting figures who you met who really were special and have left some indelible mark in your memory? Oh, that's a hard question. So many, so many people. Um, when I first got there, from the digital standpoint, um, I worked very closely with Rebecca Miskin, who um, had a lot of digital experience, a lot of media experience. Um, she's a very generous um, manager and executive. Uh, and so I've hugely appreciated her point of view. She'd worked in the States for, for quite a long time and she was a real kind of champion to me. And I think that that was important. And I started building up this notion of sisterhood, which I'm sure we'll come on to talk about around finding um, allies and particularly female allies because there were very few senior women um you know i mean there were in in the sort of board level kind of leadership level in, in at that time so that was important um i i always enjoyed working with lorraine candy who was the editor of l um and she's now gone on to um write her first book and she's just got a um, launched a podcast business fairly recently again because i found her very she was passionate about what she did, very, very no nonsense um, and um, funny as well. So I definitely appreciate that. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to appoint a new editor to Harper's Bazaar, 
um, and I appointed Justine Picardy. Um, and Justine and I are still friendly today. She's an incredible journalist, writer. Um, and I, I, I sort of, it was a big, it was a big decision to decide who to put at the helm of Harper's Bazaar. Um, lots of people vying for that job, but I just, I felt like she embodied what it meant um, to take journalism to the next level because she was so passionate about it. She'd written books about Coco Chanel. She'd written books about Dior. And, you know, she was um, somebody who, I think what can sometimes happen, especially when you're going through transformations is the editors can end up being quite um, commercially focused, which they need to be by the way, but you have to have that magic. You have to have the magic of someone who actually can write and who is, who is truly um, passionate about the, the subject. And, and that was a similar thing with um, one of the other editors that I appointed while I was there um, to launch Women's Health and then go on and edit Cosmopolitan. And she's now the editor of Elle, and that's Farah Store. Again, I saw something in her um, which was absolute grit and determination to get the job done. Um, so I'm mentioning lots of people I work with. I'm trying to think if there's any glamorous, fabulous people. I'm sure I've met many um amazing celebrities and a-listers you know we were running these gorgeous sort of um events from El style awards to harper's bazaar one of the year awards now the, the, but the slight tragedy for me was because i was the suit i'd always have to be the one who kind of made the introduction and sort of got up and you know thanked the sponsors and so on and 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 the my main um issue was can i, I i've got to get this you know i've got to get it right because you go on the front of um you you, you start El style awards and that crowd were very impatient, very loud. <laughs> and the last thing they wanted to hear was from the suit. Well, you and Matt, you're amazing. You are amazing at opening, closing and all of it because you're an absolute pro. But I was suddenly sort of thrust to the front of this stage, you know, in my sort of trussed up in whatever fancy frock I was in. And I'm like, the, the suit, you've got, you've got to get off. You know, these people, I've heard them heckle Kylie Minogue. You know, I mean, the year before they'd kind of, they really heckled her and so I'm sort of like how can I get in there and get off as quickly as possible and then you have this sort of opening of of the um Harper's Women of the Year Awards and my main thing was am I going to remember how to pronounce Odomar Piguet correctly because they've sponsored it and if I get that wrong and so it's in my husband before and he's like do it one more time come on let's hear it. Odomar okay right okay <laughs> So, yeah, um, but, you know, you, you do have pinch me moments when you've sort of got, you know, people like Gillian Anderson sitting on the next table or, you know, Kate Blanchett getting changed in the in the in the in the loose before she comes on to sort of present an award. And yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Fantastic. Yeah. The art of getting a room quiet can be very difficult. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, you've got all your gags at your fingertips, but no, I, I have to say it's uh, um, very daunting when you're looking at a bunch of people and you're the main thing between them and their starter. Oh, absolutely <laughs> true. Absolutely true. So uh, Arno gets an opportunity to go back home yeah. and in a very senior post at Vivendi. And it was a very natural elevation and evolution for you, uh, still at a young age to become the CEO. Was it a phone call? Was it an email? Did you know it was coming? Take us back to that day when all of a sudden Anna Jones is made CEO of Hearst. Um, I didn't, I, I'm obviously I was hopeful that it was coming, but um, to your point, there's a Hearst culture. And so you have to go through, you have to jump through certain hoops and you know, go to New York and have the board over to London. And they knew me. So from that point of view, I think it was easier for them. But I think, I think they really had to think carefully about um, what it said about the organisation. They want, you know, to put somebody who was an internal candidate and who was a woman at the helm of a company that had been there for over a hundred years and never never had a woman in charge. I'm not. I'm talking about the UK business. They had, of course, in the US. Um, and so I think it was. They wanted to take their time and make sure it was the right thing. So they spent a lot of time with me talking about what my strategy would be. Um, and what do I think? Honestly, I think the thing that um, got me there in the end was I was so passionate about those brands. I, like I really was, I knew 
um, I understood the different niches, I understood the different um, audiences. I was really, really clear that I felt there was a path through that didn't was was not so reliant on print. Um, I had the energy to do it, and I understood how the company worked. So um, it was, yeah. I mean, you have those moments, and, and I can remember it distinctly. Sort of being, you know, at the end of a board when they sort of told me that um, I was being appointed, and it's almost quite. It was a bit overwhelming because they were all there. You know, honestly, lots of men in suits to be quite frank um it was a bit overwhelming you know what are you supposed to do get up and whoop <laughs> are you giving yourself a pat on the back are you popping the champagne or are you just quietly saying thank you so that's all you do you just say thank you and then you kind of you know run outside and phone your husband and go oh my god I, I, that's it I'm up fantastic so you talked about smashing through glass ceilings and not only have you done that for yourself? But now as co-founder, let's start that again. Richard will edit that. Now as co-founder of Albright, you and your partner, <clears throat> Deb, are smashing glass ceilings, not only for yourselves, but for women now all over the world. You spent about three years as CEO of Hearst, seemingly a dream job you then decide to scratch that entrepreneurial itch, go back to where you and Deb met and the early iterations of the idea that became the Albright. So I think um, a lot of people thought, what on earth, why on earth would you leave your corner office to, to, to run off with the entrepreneurial circus? Now you are an entrepreneur, Matt and have been for many many years and I think it's either in you or, or it isn't and it really was in me um, but I wasn't sure what I was going to do I had various ideas along the years and talked to various people um, about doing things but when I met Debbie it was my serendipitous moment you know it was my sort of sliding doors moment and we were introduced by a mutual friend who basically said you two should be friends because you're both kind of kick-ass CEOs but very different Debbie was a serial tech entrepreneur um, and we um, we just really really clicked very quickly we had similar we live in, in a similar part of town we both had two kids we were working mums we were used to being the only woman around the table but we both felt like there was a there was a white space out there to do something which could combine our shared passion around empowering women um, with a company that, that really could be for profit, but with purpose at its heart. I had, bear in mind, as you said, I'd been COO and then CEO. So I'd been at Hearst quite a long time by, by, by this time. And I felt like I'd got, um, I'd got it on the right track in terms of where I thought the opportunities were for those brands. Um, and again, it comes back to sort of energy and excitement I felt like there's a moment now um, where I can co-found this business with somebody I hugely respect with somebody who um, I can learn a lot from um, in an area that I feel hugely passionate about that I think is extremely important because of my lived experience every single day of very often being the only woman in the room um, and also of seeing so many incredible women, you know, um, about 80% of the um, team at Hearst were female, but there still were not as many uh, at a senior level. And so I, you know, this is something that I saw and witnessed every day. And i obviously made a lot of changes when I was there, you know, to put in women into very senior roles. Um, but I also felt a bit of a zeitgeist shift. So I think this is partly my... Um, marketeers my marketeers sort of antennae <laughs> which was that you know the, the statistics were horrendous when you started looking at, at them and by the way they are really not any better now in most places and are, are likely to get even worse worse following this horrendous year of the pandemic but you know so little capital was going to back female founders you know it was two percent it's now one percent um, you know only one in six roles um, c-suite roles were held by women gender pay gap you're familiar with um we we know about board representation 
And I, I guess what I what I'd sort of felt coming, this was before Me Too, Times Up and all of that, was that rather than being sort of irritated, women feeling irritated about these statistics and standing on the sideline and kind of waiting for them to change, that they wanted to lean into this and actually positively make a difference. So this is not about sort of standing with placards and shouting and yelling. This is about celebrating everything that these incredible women can do, want to do and are doing, but making sure that they have the tools, the connections, the network, and extremely importantly, the confidence to supercharge their careers and so that they can achieve their career aspirations. And so we called it Project Albright because you know, of the, the Madeline quote, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. And that was our sort of mantra. And we scribbling it on the back of a cocktail menu when we were riffing on what, what we could do when we when we grew up. And um, and then it sort of stuck. You know, we liked the name. We put another L in it because actually that's what it was about. It was a platform which was celebratory, but something that was around tooling women up. When I think of the Albright as an outsider looking in, to me, it's a little bit of Soho House a little bit of the Harvard Business School and a little bit of almost an entrepreneurial academy. Mm-hmm. It is also a home. All of those elements, I would imagine, were not in that original business plan that you and Debbie put together way back when. You're now global and growing, but the journey has been interesting to say the least. How much of what we are today goes back to that initial plan? How much of it is different? And of course, we're going to talk about the journey of the last year. I think the organizing thought is the same, that you you bring women together, bring smart-minded women together, amazing things happen. You know, we have these neons in the in our physical spaces that say sisterhood works. And we believe that, and I believe that. And that really means that, you know, women come together and they have each other's backs and amazing things will happen. How we delivered it is absolutely pivoted, changed, moved. um, And that's the entrepreneurial journey. You know, we started with um, a physical members club in um, uh, Fitzrovia, Rathbone Place, we then moved it on to Mayfair. We then moved it into LA. Um, we started running these courses through the Albright Academy, which were very much um, face-to-face courses. Um, we launched a magazine, of course. You know, I had to have a magazine. Um, we wrote a book called Believe, Bill Become, How to Supercharge Your Career. So I suppose at its heart, it was always around women and their careers. But what it's now become, you know, in terms of a digital platform and in terms of all of the elements that we offer around network, connection, upskilling, experiential, you know, content that hopefully inspires, but also that's very practical and pragmatic that has that has all sort of evolved and grown as we have evolved and grown. I think thinking about it today Um, the opportunity coming back to your very first question around digital is digital. You know, that's something that this last year, which has been brutal for so many businesses, ours included, has expedited our focus on a business without boundaries, you know, um, a sisterhood without walls and, and, and the ability to be able to connect women globally in a way that we hadn't, uh, hadn't fully lent into, I think, until this year. Yeah, I love the app that you launched. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And you have something like almost 200 some odd training courses. Yeah, yeah, we do. We have, um, we have digital training courses, which are hugely important because again, it comes back to perhaps really my background in you know, working with content most of my career. I think it's really, really, really important to have that inspiration. So I think it's really important that whole notion of you have to see it to believe it and and see it to be it. But I think it's quite often you read something or you go and hear someone speak and you're like, that's amazing. But what does it really mean for you in your life? Like, How do you change? And so what we always try and do is the so what at the end of it. So, you know, we have 
Karen Blackett or Nicola Mendelssohn or, you know, amazing, incredible female leaders talking about their experience, but there's only kind of one of them. <laughs> so then how do you distill the elements that they're talking about and play that back to women in a way that is really easy for them to understand, okay, tomorrow or next week or whatever it is, when I go into my work, this is how I'm going to adjust or change, or oh, this is what I'm going to add, or this is what I'm going to going to drop, you know, to, to make a difference. And so they're very um, practical as well as in, inspiring. Um, and I think it's really important. I think people want to do these things on the go. Um, I think we've learned a lot since we've been providing this these courses about what people want. Um, and it's a broad range, you know, it's everything from kind of personal brand to how to negotiate. So a lot of the things that I've seen women um, being held back with, um, we, we've tackled head on. And, you know, we, we've also built off that, you know, we have the Albright Elevator program, which is specifically for C-suite women uh, who want to get to the next level. And they want to be um, connected with each other in this sort of cohort um, you know, there's kind of 10 to 20 of them that are all the same level, but very different industries. And, uh, and they learn together. So they go through this experience together and they learn as much from each other as they do from us and from the coaches that are involved. And I think that's my belief is that I think you have it's important to have structured, um, structured learning. But I think it's also really important to learn from others, especially who have have a similar experience but from a different industry or they might a different age and a different walk of life and I think that's the magic that we create and it is magic so you touched on entrepreneurial spirit and I happen to agree with your assessment that it's either something that you have or you don't I think many things we can learn we can acquire but that to me is something that either it's there or it isn't talk about the satisfaction level that you must have as an entrepreneur, which is a very different level of satisfaction than hitting a target for a big public company? I think it's very hard to explain um, that satisfaction. Um, I think it's it depends on your temperament, I guess, because it's also to your point, and you know this very well, we talk about this. It, it's a roller coaster. I mean, like all of these big jobs are a roller coaster, but nothing is like the entrepreneurial roller coaster that is up and down in a day, sometimes part of a day. So you can start a day going, it's amazing. We're going to smash it. Come, this fabulous idea. It's going to be the next whatever, TikTok or something. And then sort of after lunch, you're like, oh, this has happened. This is a disaster. We now don't have as much runway or this person, our like superstar is resigned or whatever it may be. And the lurch from sort of, um, you know, high as a kite to kind of down on the floor is, is not for the faint hearted, um, which is why I'm very happy that I've got a co-founder who's been through it several times before. So she can just say to me, you know, uh, it's OK. <laughs> We're also, we've got the, um, both of us, both Debbie and I are very um, forward, all about forward momentum, probably too much so. You know, I think sometimes it is good to just stop and reflect and it really is an Achilles heel of mine to just sort of say, okay, well, hang on, just, just stop for a moment and either go, well, that was amazing, that was great. So your point on satisfaction is quite interesting because I think, what is it that makes me satisfied? It's what we are doing for the community and, and our audience for sure and our, all of our members but for me personally it's partly to do that I'm so impatient I'm an impatient person I like forward 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 so and I like the pace and that was always the thing that drove me slightly mad about being in a very big corporate was I found them too slow um, so it's it's those two things rather than oh you know look I've created this from nothing or you know I um you know, we've hit this target or that target. It's a little bit more about the pace, the fact that um, I can, I feel like I'm, a, you know, in control of my own destiny. And then also the real kind of kicker is when someone comes up to me. In fact, one mini aside, which happened to me yesterday, I was booking my hair, hair appointment and I phoned up and I sort of said, oh, you know, if you've got an appointment for Friday, and she said, oh, who, what's your name? Anna Jones. She said, oh, is that Anna Jones? Like the Anna Jones. And I was like, how this is hilarious. She obviously thinks I'm the vegetarian chef. And so I was like, yeah. And she said, oh, I just want to say thank you. You have got me, Albright has got me through lockdown. 
She was like, I am on there every day. I've done the courses. I've recommended to everyone I know. I've met so many people through the app. And I was like, oh, that's incredible. You know, I'm really, so then, you know, for the next sort of hour or so, I was like, yeah, you know, really, that's amazing. It's just one person, but, you know, that is so satisfying. Absolutely. And, and I think one of the traits that we share is spending very little time on what has been done and most of our time on what is still to be done. Yeah. And you use that word satisfaction. I know for me, the last year, almost all the things that satisfy me from a business vantage point, many of them have been taken away. Mm. The opportunity to be in the company of friends like you, mm. the opportunity to be you know, in the middle of the circus. But we found our way and forward we go. And thank goodness, you know, there's now real light at the end of the tunnel. How has the journey been for you, for someone who is also go, 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 to suddenly be restricted and in your case, literally locked down? Um, well, like many people, March last year, we were just on this huge um, event, <laughs> the, all, uh, the Brightlist Awards, celebrating incredible women, now Mayfair Club, my friend Laura Whitmore was um, hosting it. It was like, it was amazing. And then literally a couple of days later, it was sort of like, you know, this Chinese flu, this is, is coming. And Debbie and I remember we were sitting in our office, we were like, there is no way. There's no way this is going to shut up, you know, shut us down kind of thing. <laughs> this is flu, it'll be fine. What do you think? Three weeks, two, three weeks. Um, and so, you know, like everyone, we just didn't, we just couldn't imagine what it was going to be like very, very quickly. And then about a week later, I got COVID, as did my co-founder. And it was, you know, pretty nasty, not, not nasty at like, you know, unfortunately some people have had the most horrific experiences. It wasn't like that. It was like a very nasty, um, sort of virus. Um, during that time, we had to shut our physical spaces down. We had to close them all down. I had to furlough the staff. Had to. We were in the middle of a funding round. Um, all of that had to go on pause. Um, it was absolutely brutal. And we assumed that we were going, that was it. We were done. We were going to go bust. Um, and so we managed to... Um, make our way through that we managed to get funding we managed to pivot the business to digital um we managed to keep a core team with us to my earlier point believing still which is really important um i think once you have faced that and that that you're going down effectively um anything else is upside and so we very quickly to the put on positive momentum thought we either see this as something that's going to sink us or we see it as a as an opportunity and the opportunity to use digital and to support all of the amazing women that we knew needed um network and community and inspiration more now than ever was the thing that got me out of bed I mean, I was doing, my friends found it hilarious. They were like, every day your face is popping up on Instagram Live. Who are you hosting today? Instagram Live, Zoom panels, you know, um, workshops, you name it. We were, we were there. We were, uh, you know, probably way, way, way oversaturated, to be quite honest. But what we wanted to do was just reach out and just say, okay, we're in this together. This is all about sisterhood now we can inspire each other and get each other through. And people were going through so many crazy experiences from sort of furlough to their company having been closed to actually being super busy because they're on the front line to having to homeschool, all the stuff that we know about, right? We were, we all, we've all lived through it. Um, but I think the thing that it made me um, reflect on is how unbelievably resilient humans are, how adaptable humans are, and how if you, um, thank goodness we can stay connected, right? That Thank goodness that digital is here, that you and I can still chat and, you know, fine, we're not doing it over a glass of rosé, more of the pity, um, but we can still connect. Uh, and so I think it opened up a window of opportunity that probably would have taken us, I don't know, 
18 to 24 months to do and we we just squashed that into a kind of six month period um and so there's nothing like having the fire um under you to to, to make you and also to spend that that time with the community and listening 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 what do they want to make you innovate well what do they say necessity is the mother of invention right and is your business now in an unexpected way stronger than it would have been I think it's um, it's much stronger because opening physical spaces is really difficult in terms of the amount of time, the amount of people involved, the amount of capital tied up. Um, digital means that we've been able to launch in Australia. Um, we've been able to scale in the USA. We've been able to hit you know, Hong Kong, um, Singapore, we have, um, we're launching in, well, we're supposed to be launching in India this month, but for obvious reasons, we've sort of put that um, on the back burner for a couple of months um, because it's so dreadful over there at the moment. Um, but, you know, having that, that real sort of global, um, global approach and global opportunities and also seeing that this is a moment in time that we're all living through at the same time. I mean, that only happens in world wars and, and actually not every country is affected by a world war, right? So this is a moment in time that we, we, no one will ever forget. We're all living through it. That's very connecting. And so actually we have seen bonds form between women um, in our community in a way which perhaps would have taken a lot longer Whereas now, yeah, you're on a workshop or you're networking with someone who's in, you know, Chicago or in Sydney, that just feels a lot more natural than it probably would have done pre-pandemic. Fantastic. So we've had um, inverse experiences. I'm an American and we launched our first international edition of Advertising Week in London in 2013. So I went from this side of the Atlantic to the other side. You did the opposite. You went from the UK, skipped over New York and went all the way to the West Coast in the Pacific Ocean in Los Angeles. Talk about your experience of opening and expanding the Albright from London to Los Angeles. Um, Look, it's what we find with the US audience generally is that they are enthusiasts you know, way, the, the Brits tend to keep things on a bit more on the lowdown, whereas in the US, you get that, you get your feedback straight away, <laughs> um, which can be, you know, good and bad. Um, but also we found that um, there was so much enthusiasm and sort of warmth. And also, I think there was a lot of intrigue around a British company and a British sensibility. Um, and also, I, I think our audience, particularly a, a, a hunger um for a more global experience um i mean you know that's not that's not every american that's not every european but but I, but the, but our audience are international um travelers they are curious they are they have a global um uh, you know they, they have they have that sort of global feel to them and i think um it felt quite it felt quite exciting i i think what we were doing felt quite quite novel um and you know we we just we feel very excited still about the scale of the opportunity in the us um there are various players um over there um that have launched since uh, we we have we launched talking about women and community and the importance of career and so i i think it feels like there's some real momentum happening there just generally as a whole movement which I um, we're very, very excited to see and excited to be a part of. And if we were to look in our Albright crystal ball, you're just about four years in now. Um, what do you think we'll see in the next four years? Um, I think we have unfortunately uh, taken a backward step in terms of women um, and careers during this pandemic. Um, you know, lots of women, more women have been furloughed uh, more women have taken a setback from their careers to do, you know, to for caring duties. Um, so there's quite a lot of work to be done to get back on track. But I do believe that there's cause for optimism. 
you know, we did a big global survey and, you know, the statistics were, were very positive, you know, two thirds of women saying that they actively wanted to, um, you know, move on in their careers and, and reach higher heights. So I'm, I'm optimistic about that. I think for, um, for Albright, we are really excited about the opportunity for digital and what we can do next. So, you know, what else can we offer to this community? We launched um, a, a matching algorithm called Sisterhood Matching, which basically allows you to meet women who are in a similar geography to you or, or a geography of your choice in a similar industry to you and have similar goals to you. So I think that will be very interesting to see how that how that moves forward, because um, I think my point about around global opportunity and global community is going to be more important than ever. So we're really excited about that and what we can do there. Um, we're running events every single day digitally. We will start running them IRL in real life again um, very, very soon, um, you know, in the US and in the UK and in Australia and in India. Um, and hopefully in Asia as well. And I mean, like you, I just think that the, having that sort of mix, that hybrid between digital and actually having those serendipitous moments um, when you meet people in real life is going to be, um, is the thing that we're all missing. And so we're very excited to get that going again. Yeah, and that is the sweet spot. It's that intersection of digital and experiential because the desire of people to get together, to be in the same room, to go back to concerts, music festivals, et cetera, uh, or in a business setting, I'm excited. I have a lunch meeting today, you know, <laughs> isn't that, you know, never so thrilled about lunch, yeah. uh, just because we enjoy the company of other people. So uh, this has been uh, absolutely a joy to catch up with you, Anna. And it's an incredible story. And knowing you as well as I do, um, we are still very much in the early stages of what will be a very long book. Oh, thank you, Matt. Um, thank you so much for having me. And I just can't wait for us to have lunch together in person. Mm -hmm.